You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right. If you brought your Bible with you, open up to Mark chapter 3, where we're going to be today, or feel free to pull it up on your phone as well. And there's a sermon outline that you can uh, follow along with if that's helpful for you. Um, Are you the same person you were a few years ago? Maybe for some of you, that's a two or three years ago. For some of you, maybe it's 30 or 40 years ago. Are you the same person you were when you were 14 or 18 or 25 or seven? I mean, in a biological sense, mostly not, right? You're you're a different set of skin cells. You're a different set of uh, internal cells and blood cells. But I think we all have an intuitive sense that we're the same person. You know, some people describe it as a river. You know, it's different water, but it's the same river the whole way down. Are you the same person? Do you have the same identity throughout the course of your life? Um, Some of you would like to think so when it comes to positive things, but maybe leave some other things behind. Uh, When I was 14, I was really into hockey, and I grew a mullet. And I'm not going to show you a picture, because the internet is real. But um, I look back on that portion of my life, and I think, that's a choice I made, right? That is a thing I deliberately did. (laughs) Business in the front, party in the back. and I share that with you because it's not that embarrassing, but what if, what if it was something truly shameful from your past or my past? Um, are we responsible for those things before God, before other people? Or do we do what so often is declared in our culture to say, well, you know, all those choices led me to the person I am today and I wouldn't change any of them and I have no regrets because it's all part of growing as a person, right? Mullets, yes. Uh, some sins, maybe not. How do you reconcile the choices that you and I have made in our life, the ways that we have sinned against a holy God and against people that we love and things that we wish that we had done differently? Do we need to deal with them or do we just sort of let bygones be bygones? That's what this passage is about. It's about what is the role of forgiveness in all of our lives and and where does Jesus fit into that? And it's going to talk about forgiveness in a profound and empowering and beautiful way, and also in a very frightening way, as it talks about what it means to be outside of forgiveness, or to never have forgiveness, to use the biblical phrase. And this passage, sometimes called the unforgivable sin, that's a, as you'll see, probably an unfortunate way to paraphrase it, raises a lot of anxiety for some of us. I know it does for me, as I've thought about it this week. Um, And I hope that as we go through this passage, it'll help you hear Um, what Jesus is saying, what he's not saying, and and what he invites you and I into. The passage kind of has an A-B-A structure. So it starts by talking about his biological family, and then it talks about this interaction with the scribes in sort of adversarial way, and then it closes with a discussion about his biological family as well. Usually in the Gospels, or really in the Bible as a whole, whenever you see that A-B-A structure, there's usually some progression. So we're going to see an invitation at the end of what he's inviting you and I to be a part of at the end of the passage in verses 31 to 35. My hope hope for this sermon, my hope for this 30 minutes or so that we're together talking about this, is that you and I will be open and honest before God about um, what it means to need forgiveness and what he's saying to us about uh, what he offers in light of forgiveness. Sometimes forgiveness can raise so many emotions for us because we feel ashamed or we feel anxious or we feel angry. Um, That's really hard for us to even hear the scriptures uh, for what they're saying. So I I just hope that you and I can can open ourselves to God in this time together. So let's jump into it in uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. 
And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. A little background, if you've been with us throughout Mark, you've seen the crowds come and go a number of times, and they keep sort of growing larger and larger around Jesus. Now, uh, in American culture today, that sounds like a pretty good thing. We're a culture that really values popularity, uh, really values fame. Uh, If someone in your family became really famous, on average, we'd probably be happy for them. That seems to be a good thing in American culture today, or treated as a good thing. You can hear my ambivalence about the concept of fame, but um, we generally like crowds in our culture. That was not the case in Israel at this time. To be the one who was agitating a crowd, or as the Romans would see it, a mob, was often grounds for a capital offense. If you were sort of seen as the one who was drumming up the masses, it was probably a bad thing for Rome. And as the expression goes, the tall nail gets the hammer. And so you're the one who was going to be uh, knocked out. And maybe not just you, but your whole family would be crucified as well. Uh, you can see in verse 21, this is how his family understood it, right? When they heard it, what's the it? That, that a crowd is rallying around Jesus. The crowd is the thing that gives them pause. His family, his biological family, is not concerned necessarily about his claims or his actions. They're concerned about the crowd and what the crowd represents in terms of the risk it represents to Jesus and the risk it represents to them. And their response is, he is out of his mind, right? He is a crazy, depending on what translation you want to look at there. Um, Now, we'd like to see a little more faith from his family, right? At least Mary, right? I mean, remember the angel Mary? Remember the Immaculate Conception? Remember all this stuff? Like, none of that ringing a bell? (laughs) Like, Uh, we'd like her to offer a little more leadership, spiritual leadership in her family here. Uh, Some commentators think that she's just kind of being sort of uh, run over by her other sons, that they're kind of the ones who lack faith. John 7 says that not even his brothers believed in him at this point, so that would change later on in their life. Um, I kind of think more maybe Mary's having her own crisis of faith, or maybe she's just concerned for Jesus' well-being. Whatever the reason, she and them go and, and try to intervene in his life and stop him. We're not going to see that intervention now. That'll come at the end of the passage after he has this interaction uh, with the scribes and Pharisees. But it is worth asking, is there anything that we can learn from this passage for us today? Well, I mean, I think if we put ourselves in the shoes of his brother and his mother's, sorry, I got the, the brothers and mother, not brother and mother's, um, Got those confused. It's been a long morning. Um, We can ask the question, what would we have done? Like, would we have delighted in seeing someone that we used to eat Cheerios with come to such prominence and importance? Or does the Nazareth effect happen to us too, where we remember when someone was young, we remember when they were impressionable, and it's hard for us to see them any different, even if it's the Son of God in the future. Churches talk about this sometimes, that uh, it can be really hard for someone who was a high school student in a church to ever become an elder in that church, because everyone squeezes their cheeks and say, I remember when I changed your diaper, which shouldn't be happening in the high school group, but that's a whole separate thing. Um, right? And, and uh, some of you guys who are younger in our church might be feeling some of that Nazareth effect, where you feel like, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the same eight-year-old you remember, right? like, I, I, I'm, I'm grown now. Um, and it's on us, who are a little bit older, to remember uh, that even, uh, even Jesus' family was susceptible in the same way that we are to this Nazareth effect. Probably more importantly, though, we can resonate with the threat. 
The way Jesus' family looked at the threat Jesus represented here rather than the opportunity he represented. And the way that they responded not, man, it's amazing that God's kingdom is in breaking, more like, oh, this is so inconvenient in my life, right? They didn't respond at the opportunity that presented for them, but they, they responded instead out of the inconvenience it represented. And you and I have the same opportunity sometimes, maybe not this profound a one, but the same opportunities presented to be part of what God's doing and we can say, oh, that's just such an inconvenience for us and not want to be a part of it. Well, I said we'd spend most of the time, and we will, on this middle section where Jesus interacts with the scribes. And it's sort of the second time in this passage where someone who Jesus should have been able to lean on for support doesn't offer it. His biological family is not there for him the way they should be. And now the religious leadership of his day also isn't there for him. And they are specifically antagonistic to what he's doing. You see this in verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So what were the scribes trying to accomplish here? Scribes would be a a specific uh, class of people, the the religious legal authorities, the one who had a lot of uh, influence in Israel, and especially in Jerusalem at the time, to interpret what the scriptures said for the people. And they seem to have made a, a coherent decision, at least a group of them did, uh, to discount Jesus' activities um, by explaining them away as not being from God, but being from Satan. This explanation did give it some, uh, some advantages because they could at least offer some plausible reason, at least in their mind, why Jesus had the power to do what he did. If you've been with us the first few weeks of Mark, you've seen that Jesus did a number of miracles in the presence of these scribes that they couldn't just explain away as hearsay or an exaggeration or that never really happened or sleight of hand. He was causing paralyzed people to walk. He was causing um, people with withered limbs to regrow them uh, spontaneously. These weren't things that he could, they could just say never happened. And so they needed another explanation. And so they seemed to have leaned on this explanation of, well, it's by Satan that he has the authority to do this not from God. And I want to point out something grammatical for you here, which is always a fun way to start a sentence. Uh, In verse 22, it says, the scribes were saying, um, this is called the imperfect tense in English and and in Greek as well, and it gets across the idea of doing something repeatedly in the past. That's different than if the translators had said, and the scribes said. That would be like a one-time action. To say the scribes were saying implies and, and that this is something that they repeatedly said, they repeatedly used as a line of argument. In fact, we see it two other times in Matthew and Luke in different contexts where the scribes attribute Jesus' power to Satan or to the demonic realm. Um, in fact, even a hundred years after this in the rabbinic literature, some of the rabbis were still using this argument that Jesus' authority came by the devil rather than from God. So why am I pointing that out? Um, because I, I want you to see that this is not one mistake that a scribe made that God is holding against them, but it's a pattern of behavior, a pattern of a posture towards Jesus that's based on a deeply held and consistent adversarial approach to his representing God. Okay, um, That's going to come up here in a couple minutes when we see how Jesus refers to what they've done. Um, so Jesus describes himself in this passage with a couple parables. 
Mark doesn't use parables or doesn't record parables in the same way that Matthew and Luke do. Most of the parables that we learn, maybe if you were a kid in Sunday school or that you maybe cherish in your Bible, like the parable of the prodigal son or uh, the parable of the lost coin, those sorts of things aren't in Mark. Mark generally describes action and events. This is one of the rare times that he describes something as a parable. And probably in English, we'd use the word metaphor for this more because it's not like a story, but he uses parables, so we'll call them parables here in verse 23. Verse 23, he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. Think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that Satan's rule and authority is based on being able to consolidate power. And if he, if he gives up any of that power voluntarily, it's going to all crumble down underneath him. This is a pretty classic way of describing any sort of mafia mentality or mob mentality, right? You have to rule with an iron fist. If you start giving away authority, the whole thing's going to splinter apart. And Jesus says that's how Satan rules over his demons. By the way, the, this explanation for the demonic realm is different than how a lot of Jesus' contemporaries would have talked about the demonic realm. Generally, Jesus, or generally, rabbis at the time would talk about fallen angels or demons as kind of sole proprietors, independent agents. But Jesus talks about them more as a consolidated force under the authority of the enemy, under the authority of Satan. And Jesus says that if Satan were to, to have some sort of false flag uh, initiative where he said, hey, pretend that you're against me and that's going to somehow give us power, Jesus says that's obviously not going to work, right? It, all that it will result in is a crumbling of Satan's authority. It's not going to expand his footprint at all. And this makes sort of intuitive sense to us, so much so that President Lincoln famously borrowed this language when describing the American Civil War, right? Like a house divided against itself cannot stand. Um, and it makes sense in the spiritual realm as well to think that if Satan's going to voluntarily give up ground, represented by these people that Jesus is emancipating, from his uh, power, it's only going to result in Satan losing influence in this life. We'll talk a lot more in coming weeks because Mark talks a lot about the demonic world. So we'll talk a lot more about this as we keep going through this series. Um, but notice in verse 27 how Jesus describes himself in relation to this. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So who are the actors in this parable. Well, the Satan is described as a strong man, and Jesus is sort of the implied stronger man, the one who has authority over Satan. Some traditions within Christianity will talk about uh, spiritual warfare and say, you need to bind Satan, or I'm going to pronounce the binding of Satan. I understand how people come to that, but I think a better way of understanding this is saying that Jesus has bound Satan. Not to say that it's up to Randy or Joey or whoever to do it, but that Jesus himself is the one who has done this and enables us to live free from fear of Satan's influence in our life. The New Testament itself paints this really beautiful and uh, compelling picture of Jesus' progressive authority over Satan in his life. From the time that he's he here in Mark 3 to Jesus' death on the cross being a victory over Satan to his resurrection being a vindication over Satan to eventually his return causing the ultimate downfall of Satan. We see a, a consistent picture that Jesus is the one who has authority over the spiritual realm. So what impact does that have for you? 
I, I will meet people every once in a while in church who have a deep fear of demons or demonic influence in their life. And sometimes that comes from, from cultural things they've experienced or seen. Sometimes it comes from family of origin stuff. Sometimes it comes from mental illness stuff. It, it can be a whole host of stuff. Um, but the most comforting thing for me in my own life and that I would want to offer you is passages like this, that, that Jesus has bound Satan, that if you're in Christ, that you are sealed by his spirit, according to Ephesians 1, and that Satan has no authority over your life or over uh, the affairs of your world. Does he try to tempt you? Sure. Do, does Satan try to accuse the brethren or as First Peter 5 described, is he like a roaring lion who seeks to devour? Of course. And you would be foolish to ignore that or to act like that's not real. But that you have every uh, resource spiritually that you need to be safe in Christ. No matter what Ouija board you used when you were eight or what heavy metal music you listened to on your way to church today or um, you're listening to now in a headphone while I'm talking. Uh, like Christ has... has Christ is the stronger man. He is the one who has authority. If he is in your heart, then you are safe in every spiritually significant way as a result. Well, um, I, I do want to mention this in the sense of this is relevant to you. This isn't just, Jesus is not just talking about the, the few people that he healed in 33 AD, right? He, he's talking about everyone. That's what it, Colossians 1.13 says when he says that um, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Right? All of us, whether wherever you're at in life, if you have chosen to follow Christ, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness into the domain of light, from under the authority and rule, literally as this passage talks about, that, that being the property or the goods of the strong man of Satan, to being a brother or sister in the kingdom of God. This is offered to all of us. But to do that, we need to be forgiven. And we're going to pick this up in verse 28, and um, I want to mention how important this is to Jesus. Uh, he uses this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, or literally, amen and amen, to introduce verse 28. And this is unprecedented. There, there's no one in the ancient world who talked like this. This was not a normal way to talk, even in the Old Testament. Um, it seems to be Jesus' way of saying, this is really important. So whenever in Mark, or else in the Bible, else in the New Testament, you see Jesus saying, truly, truly, that's not just filler words, that's Jesus really wanting to get across him, and that's important to him. The only time in the Old Testament, uh, in the Greek Old Testament, that you see the same construction is in Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 65, where God describes himself as the God of amen, and Jesus borrows that same language repeatedly to talk about himself. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Okay, let me stop there for a second. The next passage in verse 29 is going to talk about the limits of forgiveness. And that tends to produce a lot more anxiety for some of us. Uh, so I want, to, I want you to just hold on that for a second and just notice verse 28 and think about how profound what Jesus is saying is. All sins and blasphemies will be forgiven the children of man. Everything that you have done and left undone, every uh, painful thing that you have chosen to inflict on someone you love or someone you hate. Every, every shaking your fist at God, knowing that it is the wrong thing to do and not caring a lick in the moment. All those things are, are held out in front of you as a gift of forgiveness. 
Think about how different that is than everything that came before Jesus in salvation history. Think about how the law talked about the consequences of sin, how how the wages of sin is death, and how you and I deserve that. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is going to be different. All those things can be forgiven. How how would you have heard that the first time? Like before the cross, before the book of Romans, you know, before you have all the benefits of the rest of the New Testament, just the idea that, that all sins and blasphemies can be forgiven. All the ways that you misrepresent God in what you've done or, or in the, the choices you've made or the, the actions you've done, the responsibilities you've abdicated, those can all be forgiven. And forgiveness is possible for all of us. But verse 29 is also there, and it's held together in this, in this uh, amazing tension. It says, but, what it, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This verse, verse 29, sometimes unfortunately described as the unforgivable sin. Um, and, and when we frame it that way, we act as if what Jesus is saying is, there's some action out there that if you do it, it sort of flips the switch that can't be unflipped the rest of your life. But, but look carefully at how verse 29 is talking. It's not talking about an action that you later regret. It's saying, if you shake your fist at the Spirit and say, what you are saying about Jesus is untrue, and I will never have forgiveness. It's a a really fascinating verbal construction, isn't it? Never has forgiveness. It's different than saying, will not be forgiven, or uh, will never be forgiven, or something to that effect. It's talking about something that you will never have, right? That is something that cannot be in your possession. Forgiveness put simply, is impossible without the Holy Spirit. If we pit ourselves against God, we will not be forgiven by God. If we look at who Jesus is and say, that's the devil, then we will never be on Jesus' side. That's essentially what, uh, what Jesus is describing here. He's, he's looking at the people who see the way that he has delivered people from demon possession and said, that's Satan's influence. And he's responding to them and saying, if that's your approach, you will never have forgiveness. Um, so let's talk about a couple of these questions here because this passage does raise a lot of questions uh, for me, if not for you. And, and the first one is like, okay, Bob, you're presuming a lot of things here about the importance of forgiveness, but are all those things true? Like, do I really need forgiveness from God? Couldn't I just say, couldn't I just say, you know, I've learned from my mistakes. Um, I'm trying to be a better person in the future and what's done is done. Like, why do I, why do I need forgiveness from a holy God. Uh, after all, that's how a lot of people in our generation would speak. They, they wouldn't really talk about forgiveness as a helpful concept at all. They would say it, it downplays the, the things you've done to other people. We should just have justice and not forgiveness. Um, well, the problem with that, there's a lot of problems with that view, but the main one is it's not how the Bible talks about your heart and my heart. The Bible says that there is a holy God who exists, who's existed from eternity past, and because of who he is, there are spiritual laws at work in the universe. And when we violate those by the things that we do to other people, things uh, we think, the things we say, the things we choose not to do or not to say, it puts a gulf between us and God. And that gulf can't be bridged by choosing to be better in the future or trying harder next time or just deciding that that gulf isn't there. It's been described as like the difference from trying to, to swim from 
uh, California to Japan. Like it, you can't get across it no matter how much you try or how much effort you put in the future. The only way that gulf is going to be bridged is by someone taking on the consequences of, that cho- of those choices we made. And it's what the Bible describes is saying that Jesus is the one who's done that. He's bridged that gulf with, with his decision to come live a perfect life that we chose not to live and to die the death that we deserve. And when we believe in him, when we put our faith in him, there is an offer of eternal life. Now, this passage is saying, if you reject that, and you say, I, I don't want that. I don't want that. I'm not interested. Not, I don't think that's true. I don't think Jesus uh, is, maybe I don't think he's Satan, but I certainly don't think he's who he says he was. Then, then that gulf is still there. That's what this passage is describing. That gulf doesn't go away just because we choose not to acknowledge it. Without partnering with the Spirit, without receiving his forgiveness, without seeing the offer of salvation he makes in this world, we will never have forgiveness. So, some of you, uh, my experience tells me that there might be a couple people here who really wrestle with this concept of the unforgivable sin in a, in a personal way. And maybe you worry, like, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Maybe you're not so sure about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing, but you know you've done something pretty bad or what you consider pretty bad in your life in the past. And you've heard about the unforgivable sin somewhere in the Bible or somewhere in church, and you think, that's probably what I did. I mean, I, I left my kids and left them to fend for themselves, and I abandoned my family. That seems unforgivable. Or um, I made money in a way that was really exploitive of other people. That seems pretty unforgivable. Or I've made sexual choices that I'm really ashamed of and I hope no one finds out about, but that feels really unforgivable. Um, none of those things are the unforgivable sin. Those all fit within the same bucket that you and I and everyone else is in of needing the grace of Jesus Christ. So if you're worried about have you committed the unforgivable sin, the answer is no, you haven't. But if you've never thought about this, in fact, you haven't thought much about God at all, or maybe you do because you come to church with your spouse out of obligation, um, but you're pretty sure it's all a crock, and you're pretty sure that it's all a hoax, and you're not really worried about it at all, this passage is a warning to you and to me that forgiveness is not automatic. Forgiveness is not something that, that Jesus does just for all of humanity without any cost to himself or out with, without any participation of those who choose to believe in him. The unforgivable sin is not nothing, but it's not some sort of boogeyman that should cause you unnecessary anxiety as well. One last thing. I know that there are some people, and there are some traditions, that come from a background where the, the phrase, the unforgivable sin, is kind of used as a spiritual abuse weapon. Here, here's what I mean. Um, if you don't believe that what I'm saying is the Spirit of God, then you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and you're at risk of committing the unforgivable sin. And that can sometimes be used, unfortunately, by pastors as a way to get people to to give money or to agree with them on something or to say that truly was the spirit at work when you have a lot of doubts or skepticism, um, especially if you come from certain Pentecostal traditions, not all of them, but, but some of them, this passage can be used pretty violently um, or pretty aggressively. And I really hope that you see in your own Bible what it's talking about. It's talking about a consistent uh, and insistent posture towards Jesus, either to see him as who he claims he is, or as the devil, right? This is not about saying, I don't know, I, I don't think that was the spirit. I think that was a bad burrito. I don't think we should do that, right? Um, or I don't, 
I don't think that person was slain in the spirit. I think you just knocked them over, right? That's not the, being doubtful or skeptical of those things is not committing the unforgivable sin. Um, and then the last thing, just sort of, maybe this is an overarching thing for me. Is this, is this passage good? <laughs> is this a good passage or is this a passage to be kind of embarrassed about? Like, is it good that there's such a thing as an unforgivable sin? Shouldn't it just be, you know, rainbows and sunshine at the end of the passage? Like, wouldn't it be better if just everyone was forgiven everything all the time, whether they wanted to be or not? Sometimes that's kind of the, the, the Disney version of what we want our faith to represent. Like, you know, there's forgiveness and unforgiveness, but in the end, at the end of the ride, everyone's happy, right? Well, there's a problem with that, right? There's no justice there, right? There, there's no justice for the wounds that you've experienced at other people's hands. If we said there's no such thing as an unforgivable sin, if, it, if there is no such thing as a consequence, ultimately, for rejecting God, what you'd be saying, what I'd be saying, is that ultimately, whether people want to be with God or not, they're going to be. That people have no true free will, they have no true, no true decision in the process. They're going to be dragged to heaven whether they like it or not. And as has famously been said, there's two types of people in the end. There are people who turn to God and say, your will be done. And there are people who kick against God and God responds with, your will be done. Right? And, and ultimately, we all have to make that choice, whether we'll participate in the family of God or not. This passage integrates really importantly with the rest of the Bible's teaching because the New Testament as a whole talks about how significant and profound God's grace is for our sin. And we've been singing about that all morning. But it also says, don't mistake the grace of God for God's apathy about our sin. As the Westminster Confession of Faith put it, there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation on those who repent. You and I have the same offer in front of us as which life will we choose? Which destination will we choose? And this last section really puts that in a vivid term, talking about his family. Jesus is going to, uh, Mark is going to sort of bring back into the story the biological family of Jesus to sort of present this offer to you and to me in a very fresh and important way. They're going to come before Jesus. Remember, they, they've wanted to sort of stop him. They think he's insane. And they come in front of him now. And this is his response in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, I know if you're just reading this, I don't know where this feels like, Oh, that's cold, Jesus. Like, either you're stupid or mean. Like, which one is it? Um, it's neither, right? Remember, at this point, uh, Mary, who should have known better, his mother, and his brothers, who at least should have listened to their mom at some point about their perfect older brother, um, have decided to set themselves against Jesus to try to stop him from doing the thing that we all needed him to do. And his brothers later, there is a happy ending there. At least James and Jude would become disciples of Jesus and write books in the New Testament that bear their names. But at this point, they've sort of set themselves against Jesus. And Jesus asks this rhetorical question of who, who truly is on my side. In verse 34, he looks around at those who sat around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' invitation here to be part of his family is really meaningful in light of what this rest of this passage has talked about. Right? We've gone from being property of the strong man, property of Satan, to brothers of Jesus. Right? We've gone from being under the, the thumb of the enemy to being part of the family of God. 
And Jesus says, this is in front of anyone who responds to the gospel, anyone who responds to me. As he says in John 6, this is the will of my Father, that everyone looks on the Son and believes in him and should have eternal life. And that's the offer in front of you and me and all of us today, is whether we'll choose that or whether we'll choose the path of rejecting forgiveness and going our own way. I'm glad we get to take communion together this morning because communion is a time of recommitment of our lives to Christ. If you come this morning with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of fear that you've committed some unforgivable sin, I hope that communion for you is a time of uh, resting in the grace of Jesus Christ and seeing how communion shows us that your sins are paid for on the cross. If you come to communion today, you come to church today and you're like, I don't know, I, I, I haven't really worried about that or thought about that in years. Like I, I really haven't thought much about God in years. I hope communion is a time that, that sort of revitalizes you, that, that represents a recommitment of your life to Christ. And if you're here and you, in the honesty of your heart, we kind of consider yourself maybe not an enemy of Jesus, but certainly not his friend, not a follower of him, well, this morning is a chance to change that to choose a different direction, to choose the path of becoming a follower of Christ. And communion can be a really vivid example of that as well. well. Let's pray together. God, I pray for my friends who are here um, whose hearts have a lot of guilt in them. Um, maybe for something that they did a long time ago or, or happened a long time ago. And um, maybe they've, they've even heard this passage alluded to at some point, an unforgivable sin, and they've thought, that's my story. I, I can never forgive myself for what I did or the choices I made. God, I pray that as the east is from the west, so far you remove our transgressions from us. God, would you give us a bigger view of what Christ did on the cross this morning, that we may agree with you that all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven the children of man. Uh, God, I pray for my friends who are here who are really... Um, either apathetic or antagonistic towards you. Uh, maybe they're, they're in church physically, but their hearts are far from you. And um, they're at risk of, of, of rejecting you altogether. God, I pray that they would turn around and come to, uh, to know you and to know your love. And God, I pray for my friends who are here who are maybe new to all this. The idea of forgiveness feels so heavy. It feels inviting, it feels attractive, but it also feels severe. God, I pray that you would give them a, a deep and beautiful picture of your love for them and of your desire to forgive them and their need for that as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.